Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. Shannon Shakespeare Sunday with your host, my daddy, Shannon Riley. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75 Live. Thank you to my darling BB for introducing me. Once again, I'm Shannon Riley. I am a Shakespeare enthusiast. I don't claim to be a scholar. I just am somebody who really loves the work of William Shakespeare. And I've been granted this lovely half hour to come to you every Sunday on the 8th to talk a little bit about the greatest playwright who ever lived. And today, we're talking about Troilus and Cressida. <laughs> now I know what you're thinking. Shannon, you're making these titles up. I'm not. I'm serious. This is a real title. Some of you may never have heard of this title before, but it is genuinely a work of William Shakespeare's. No doubt a lesser work, but nonetheless a work of William Shakespeare. And this is the thing about Troilus and Cressida, and I feel like I've said this phrase several times, but it's impossible to classify Troilus and Cressida. It is a later work where Shakespeare stopped worrying about the classifications of plays, whether it was a drama, a history, a comedy. He wrote what he wanted to write. And this particular play is very, very difficult to classify because it's funny, it's not funny. It's serious, it's not serious. It's a romance, it's not a romance. And it is incredibly long. As a matter of fact, it, it ambles along. Troilus and Cressida, who are the main characters of this play, literally are the minor story in the play. In some of my reference books, they list Troilus and Cressida among the comedies, and some of them they list it as a tragedy, others list it in as a romance. I'm going to call it a romance, and I'll tell you why as we go forward in this play, even though the story of Troilus and Cressida is minor compared to the other story that is going on in the play. First of all, why he wrote Troilus and Cressida. It, it is his take of the Trojan War. And let me tell you, anything Greek or Roman was very popular among the Jacobean audiences. And this would have been a Jacobean play. Anything about that period was incredibly fascinating. The Trojan War was written and rewritten in play versions all over the place. And as a matter of fact, Troilus and Cressida really weren't a part of the original story of the Trojan War. They were added by Chaucer in the 1500s when he wrote a poem about Troilus and Cressida. And it's this poem that has been intermingled into the story of the Trojan War. Who were Troilus and Cressida? Well, they were both members of Troy. They lived in Troy. Cressida, Troilus was a warrior in the army of Troy. And Cressida was the daughter of a very powerful member of the Troy society and a poet who abandons Troy and takes up with the Greeks instead, thinking the Greeks are going to win the Trojan War. So he goes to live with them. So here it says, father-daughter team again. And that's what I'm going to talk about, is this theme of father and daughter. And even more startling here is this father's a poet, and this father is a traitor. And he has abandoned his daughter. 
Now, if you've been listening to any of my podcasts, you know that at the end of Shakespeare's writing life, was very close to the end of his real life, he was contemplating, did he do the right thing? Did he make the right choices to give up on his family and travel to London to make a career? Yes, he became wealthy. Yes, he sent home a lot of money. Yes, he bought them a big house. But he did not really know his family. Particularly, he did not know his daughters. He might have traveled back and forth two, three times a year. There's evidence towards the end of his life, he was much more enamored with the idea of being in Stratford rather than in London and would move eventually back to Stratford, but never really giving up London. He traveled back to see shows. But here is a guy who really is questioning everything he ever did. So he picks up the story of Troilus and Cressida, which, by the way, he wasn't the only playwright writing about Troilus and Cressida. There's evidence of a couple of other plays, but like in so many of Shakespeare's plays, we really don't know when he wrote this play. It's possible he wrote it as early as 1602, which would make it an Elizabethan play. We don't know. We do know that it got published in 1609. And what's fascinating about that is it got published twice in two different quartos in 1609, and both of them contradict each other with the story of its success as a play. In one of the publications, it calls it a play that has been performed numerous times on the stage. Another says it has never before been performed. So what is it? It's possible that one was a revision and the other then was not. It was the original. But which is which? Because they both seem pretty much relatively the same. So this question of Troilus and Cressida not only being hard to classify, it's even hard to understand when it was published or if it was ever performed in Shakespeare's lifetime. It's possible that it wasn't, but it did get a life of its own after Shakespeare's death. Matter of fact, around 200 years after Shakespeare's death, as it started to have the question of war and the cost of war being its prime storyline. And that's what we're going to talk today about, is those two different storylines in this play that made up Troilus and Cressida. But before I go too much further, I always like to invo invite my boy in here to please give us his favorite take of the day. So, Finn, take it away. And now, the Shakespeare quote of the week. There really aren't too many quotes that I want to hang on here in Troilus and Cressida. It's a very long play. It's one of his longer plays. And the lines are rather buried inside longer speeches, so it's kind of hard to pull something out that stands on its own. I will say a couple of things. Troilus, when looking upon this resting Cressida on her bed, in Act 1, Scene 1, he said, Her bed is India. There she lies a pearl. I think that's rather pretty, uh, as he describes his love interest, Cressida. There's also a rather brutal and sardonic servant by the name of Thersites. And Thersites, throughout the entire plays, just throws insults at people. It's the clown role, but it's a very, very bitter clown role. But he's got a great line here in Act 2, Scene 3, when he said, The common curse of mankind, folly and ignorance, be thine in great revenue. <laughs> I love that very much. And Hector says in Act 4, Scene 5, The end crowns all, and that old common arbitrator, time, will one day end it. Death comes to everybody. But I think the best quote from the play is really not a quote, but a character's name. There's a character in this play called Pandarus. His name is Pandarus, and he's overly complimentary about all of the Trojan fighters, and in particular, the king and his son, Troilus. He constantly praises Troilus to Cressida, 
to build him up in Cressida's mind. Now, this term for overflattery is called pandering, and it comes from Shakespeare's character, Pandarus. He gave us a whole new word out of a character name. I love that. All right, so what is the story of Troilus and Cressida? Well, let me go through this. It's a little complicated, and I probably won't finish it all in this first half, but again, we'll talk about it on the other half as we get through with today's Shannon Shakespeare Sunday about Troilus and Cressida. So I now take you to ancient Greece during the Trojan War. King Agamemnon and his brother Menelaus are presiding over the Greek encampment. Now they work along with their counselors, Ulysses and Nestor, and they are all concerned. They're in the middle of this Trojan War, they've been at siege with Troy for over seven years. They're still outside the gates and they can't get in. And their greatest soldier now, Achilles, is refusing to fight. And Achilles spends all of his time complaining about the Greek commanders. He complains with his friend, uh, Patroclus, who is also possibly his lover, about how disorganized the Greek army is. Now in Troy, King Priam argues with his sons, Hector and Paris. Paris is the one who's caused all this problem because he's the one who kidnapped Helen and brought her back to Troy. Although Helen isn't minding so much her captivity, staying with her lover Paris. They argue over whether or not they should just return Helen and finish this conflict. Their younger brother, Troilus, is increasingly distraught from the conflict. He has met and fallen in love with a woman named Cressida. She's the daughter of Calphus, who has defected to the Greek camp. Now, the Trojan warrior Hector has challenged Greece to send its mightiest warrior for a one-on-one -on -one combat, and the Greeks have to figure out who they're going to send out to meet him. In the meantime, in Act 2 to 3, Cressida's uncle Pandarus assists Troilus in bringing Cressida and Troilus together. He talks about how beautiful Troilus is and what a man beyond compare he is. And as other soldiers walk in, he compares them to Troilus, and none can compare. Troilus is the greatest. Cressida admits that she is indeed enamored with Troilus, but she also loves being chased. She likes the romance of being wooed, and Troilus has yet to really do that for her. So, Troilus begins to woo her, and as a result, they're able to consummate their union by sleeping together that night. Now, during that same night, Cressida's father arranges to exchange his daughter for a Trojan prisoner. And, and the next morning, when they learn of this, Cressida refuses. She does not want to leave her new lover, Troilus, but King is insistent and she is sent away to join her father. Cressida swears eternal loyalty to Troilus and promises she will always be loyal to him. Now on the Greek side, we're dealing with the commanders answering Hector's challenge by sending Ajax rather than Achilles. Achilles won't fight. He just sits in his tent all day long, womanizing, drinking, and complaining about being far from home. Meanwhile, Ajax wants to fight. He loves to fight. He's described as rather big, brawny, and brainless, so he seems to be perfect to go out and fight. But they don't think he's a real match for Hector, but Achilles is. He's a better fighter. And so Agamemnon thinks if we say we're going to send Ajax, this will spur Achilles into action, and he will insist that no, he go to meet Hector, not Ajax. Now Cressida's life takes a big turn when she is taken to the Greek camp. Once she arrives there, she's greeted by the Greek commanders. Ulysses insists that everyone kiss her, and they do, except Ulysses himself, who refuses to kiss her. And once she is gone, 
he declares her to be loose and of low morals and an unvirtuous woman. Now, it's soon learned that the Greeks will be sending Ajax to fight Hector. And they think that this is, might actually be a benefit for Ajax, since Hector's whole heart may not be in the fight, since the two men are somewhat related. But when they start talking about this fight, they realize that they're lucky that it's Hector, for they fear that the great Trojan Troilus himself might have come, and many believe he could be a more powerful fighter than even Hector himself. So here you have the setup for the end of the play, where you've got these two different storylines that are meant to converge, and yet they don't really converge here. You're building up for this big battle that's going to happen at the end between the Trojans and the Greeks, and it's centered around this battle between Hector and Ajax, with possibly Achilles jumping in in the middle. But then there's Troilus, who is now separated from Cressida, and he desperately wants to get his love back, much in the same way that the Greeks want to get Helen back from Troy. Unfortunately, she is out of reach in her father's care in a Greek camp. This is a great build-up that Shakespeare does. He sets up his story beautifully here in a way that we are really compelled to see how it's going to turn out. And this is why I find Act 5 so depressingly unsatisfying. This play falls apart for me at the end because the stories never resolve. And Shakespeare intends for them never to resolve. And it's this unresolved nature to these stories that has made this play very popular with modern audiences who want to point out the folly of war. This play has been put up as if it was done during World War II or the Vietnam conflict or the Korean conflict. And I imagine in Afghanistan one will come soon because it's all about the folly of war after this and how it destroys everything and how nothing is gained through war. It's really a depressing tale in the end. So anything funny that happened before it seems to be discounted. It's just a play that slowly, and I do mean slowly, ends. It just meanders to an ending and along the way destroys the reputation of its main characters. Want to find out how? Well, then join me after this short break. We're going to take a short break here, and then we'll come back with Act 5 of Troilus and Cressida and some comments about why I think this really does show the end of Shakespeare's writing and his desire to not do this anymore. I'm Shannon Riley. This is Shannon Shakespeare Shunday, and I'll be back in just a few minutes. Bye-bye. Right here is where I would say now for a brief word from our sponsors, but I'm just sitting here waiting for you to put words in my mouth. So for advertising opportunities, go to 785live.com. is proud to present KSEF Digital Radio, Topeka, Kansas. That's the thing you're listening to right now. And we're celebrating everything local and everything Topeka. Learn more at 785live.com. And thanks for tuning in. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio, 785live. I'm Shannon Riley. Hey, by the way, I'd like to invite you to talk to me. Let me know what you think about the show or if you have any questions. You can reach me at Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. That's Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. Riley is spelled R-E-I-L-L-Y. 
I'd love to talk to you. Let me know what you think about the show. And also, while you're at my website, check out my short films, my plays. I'd love for more people to see them. Now, I'm here today talking about Troilus and Cressida, and I've gotten up to Act 5. Here's the thing about Act 5. Almost everyone of Shakespeare's plays, once you get to Act 5, winds down pretty quickly. It's usually one, two, three scenes. Three scenes the most. In this play, there are ten scenes in Act 5. All of them are relatively short, they're compact, but at the same time, this shows how much this play meanders to the finish. And it does meander. It starts with scene one when Achilles is at a feast and they're celebrating the fact that Cressida is now back in the hands of the Greeks. And he boasts that tomorrow morning he's going to kill Hector on the battlefield. He's certain he's going to win. Now, that's when they encounter Thersites again. And you remember, he's that kind of serving mean servant who delivers a letter to Achilles and then unloads just an abuse after abuse on him, even calling Patroclus his good friend, his lover, and his masculine whore. There's a letter to him from a Trojan princess who begs Achilles, please do not fight tomorrow. If you fight tomorrow, you may die. And Achilles agrees not to fight because he's too much in love with this Trojan princess. So Achilles leaves. As they leave, Thersites remains. He watches from the shadows as the feast breaks up, and he watches as most of the lords go to bed. But one doesn't. Diomedes slips off. Diomedes is the same Greek who went to Troy to bring Cressida back to her father. And now he's off to see her under cover of darkness. And Ulysses and Troilus, who have been watching from afar, also follow him, noting that Diomedes is an untrustworthy, lustful rogue, and they all fear what he means to do with the beautiful Cressida. Now, at her father's tent, Diomedes calls to her, and her father fetches her, brings her out. Troilus and Ulysses are watching secretly from a hiding place, and off to the side, Thersites is doing the exact same thing. He woos Cressida, and she acts very reluctantly but coy towards his advances. She pushes him off, she won't let him leave. She pushes him off, she won't let him leave. Eventually, she gives him a gift that Troilus had presented to her as a love token. And then she takes it back. And then she says she never wants to see Diomedes again. And then she softens and gives in to him again. And promises that she will wait for him later. Come to here in the dead of night, she says, and we will make love. When she is gone, Diomedes also leaves. Troilus is in agony. First denying the evidence he's seen with his very own eyes and then pledging to find Diomedes and kill him. Now, in scene three, Hector is getting ready for the battle, while women, including his wife and his sister, Cassandra, plead with him not to go. They both have had dreams that prophesize his death, but he dismisses their warnings. Troilus comes in and says he'll be fighting tomorrow too, and he plans to kill a dozen men, ten times those that Hector would kill. They're all afraid that Troilus is a little bit off-hinged and maybe should not go into battle, yet at the same time he will not be put off and both Troilus and Hector leave for the battlefield. However, before Troilus can leave for battle, Pandarus stops him, and he brings him a letter from Cassandra. Troilus tears it up. He refuses to read it, and he follows Hector out into the field of battle. Scene four, the battle is raging. In scene four, the battle is raging. Thersites uh, wanders the field, escaping death several times by just being a coward, by hiding. He chides all of the soldiers, and yet hides when battle comes towards him. In scene five, and in another part of the plane, 
Agamemnon summarizes that the Greeks are both doing badly in battle, including that several people have been taken prisoner and probably slain. Then Nestor, one of his confidants, enters and says, There is a thousand hectares in the field, meaning the battle is turning the tide in the favor of the Greeks. The scene ends with Achilles entering, asking where he can find Hector. In scene six, Troilus calls Diomedes a traitor for capturing his horse. Diomedes, Ajax, and Tro Troilus exit fighting, and we don't know how that battle is going to end. Hector spares the unprepared Achilles, who cannot possibly beat him in battle. He is not ready for this. He boasts that Hector only will beat him in battle because he was unarmed, and as he runs off, Hector pursues him. In scene 7, another part of the plains, we find Menelaus and Paris enter the scene fighting. Thersites is confronted by the bastard son of Prim. Both declare themselves to be bastards and have no business fighting each other, and they go off. Then, Achilles and his men find Hector, who is finishing taking off the armor in order to put on the golden armor that he has found from a warrior he has conquered. Suddenly unarmed, the Trojans surround the great Hector, and they stab him to death. In C9, Agamemnon, Ajax, Menelaus, Nestor, Diometres, and others enter marching. Word arrives of the death of Hector. Alone on stage, Andrus sums up how futile this entire endeavor has been. Nobody appreciates anybody, but war is war, and it continues on. That's the end of Troilus and Cressida. What? Yeah. It just meanders to an ending. It doesn't really have a point to it. Except that everyone of virtue, claimed to be a virtue at the top of the play, has none. Troilus claims to be a virtuous fighter when he feels spurned by his lover, goes on a death cry just to kill for the sake of killing. Cressida, who claims to be virtuous and loving, surrenders her virginity to Troilus early in the play and then offers to become the lover of a Greek just a day later. Hector, this great fighter who simply sent a challenge to claim victory for the Trojans, is eventually killed by Achilles and several other Greeks when he is in the midst of putting on armor. This is not a play that talks about the value of war. And you notice the lovers are barely in it together. They're together at the top of the play for three very short scenes and then separated the rest of the play. I gotta say, it's an unsatisfying play. It has moments of great excitement. The battle scenes could be done very, very well. And you kind of hang on what might turn out. But when you get to the turnout, it's rather disappointing to me. To me. There are some scholars who claim it as being a great work of art. I can't argue with them. That's their opinion. I don't like this play. But this is what I do like. As I've said before, this play is hard to classify. And some people put it in with the romances. That's where I tend to drop it as well. Even though some of my favorite books don't put it there. The truth is, Shakespeare was writing about fathers and daughters. And prior to this, the daughters were all incredibly virtuous. The fathers were above reproach. Shakespeare writes a father who betrays his people and goes to live among the Greeks, leaving behind his family. And then he forces his daughter to join him. His daughter who he thought was virtuous, actually surrendered her virginity without the benefit of marriage, which to a Jacobean crowd would have been the sign of a harlot. And then she goes to live with the Greeks. And isn't there a day before she promises her favors to another man? Shakespeare's writing about fathers and daughters, and from taking it from the great zenith of Pericles and his daughter to this low level here, 
with Calphus and Cressida. Their relationship we know so little about. We hardly ever see them together. It's a very, very short scene. Calphus is practically not in the play at all. But I think this is what Shakespeare's alluding to with his life. He wonders if his absence from his daughter might have possibly led to her downfall. Is she chased? Is he what he expects to find when he goes home? And was all his sacrifice worth it? We have no idea how the Jacobean audiences responded to this play, because we're not even certain they ever saw it. It's possible they did. I can't believe a play this long would not have been at least tried upon the stage. But I don't know for sure. We only have evidence of it being performed well after his death, and it was a pretty modest response to it. It's been those people and those directors who have taken this story and focused less on Troilus and Cressida and more on the folly of war that has made this play have any lasting appeal whatsoever. That seems to be how it's treated over and over again, not only in film, but on stage. But I find it very interesting that Troilus and Cressida, the two main characters, are kind of forgotten about. They mean very little. I mean, at one point, you would think that Shakespeare was trying to set them up as the next Romeo and Juliet. They have lines about no love will ever match others. How gorgeous the story of Troilus and Cressida will be in the annals of love. And then it's like he purposely destroys it. He purposely writes them so they cannot be together. Remember, the story of Troilus and Cressida wasn't even in the real story of the Trojan War. He follows the Trojan War, actually pretty closely. He's pretty loyal to that particular subject matter. But he would have had to have been because everybody in his audience would know this story. It was very, very popular. It was the kind of story that everybody wanted to hear over and over again. It was a hero's tale, and you weren't allowed to mess with it much. They loved the story of the Trojan War. Troilus and Cressida was an add-on, a little romance thrown into the side. And that's really how history treats it later. They come out as being, well, certainly not the next Romeo and Juliet. No one near it. I think in the grand scheme of the later plays, Troilus and Cressida is my least favorite. But I also think if it belongs anywhere, it belongs among the romances. Because it really fits into this theme of what was next for William Shakespeare. And that was a slow exit from London. Next week, we'll hit upon another romance. And this is a pretty good one. It's called A Winter's Tale. Thank you all for tuning in to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And we'll see you again next week on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday on the 8th on KSEF Digital Radio 785 Live. Thank you all very much. And until we see each other again, keep it barred to the bone. Bye-bye.